0: Welcome to Take the Lead Radio with Dr. Diane Hamilton, where she interviews some of the most successful leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, speakers, and other individuals who will inspire you to take the lead in your career and personal life. And now, here is Dr. Diane Hamilton.
1: Welcome to Take the Lead Radio. This is Dr. Diane Hamilton, and I'm so glad you joined us today because we have Kent Billingsley and Sean Rosensteel here. Kent is the founder and president of Revenue Growth Company, and Sean is the author of The School of Intentional Living. We're gonna have a great conversation, so I hope you stay tuned, and we'll be back right after this.
0: Are you interested in finding out more about how HR professionals or leadership consultants can become certified to give the groundbreaking new Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The certification program will provide the ability to administer the assessment at reduced rates. Participants will learn how to interpret the results of the CCI, as well as how to deliver an innovation plan workshop designed to improve curiosity, engagement, innovation, and productivity. To find out more, go to curiositycode.com.
1: I am here with Kent Billingsley, who is the founder and president of the Revenue Growth Company. He has become America's growth growth revenue architect by helping thousands of entrepreneurs and CEOs generate several billion in new sales, as well as tens of billions in new revenue and profits for large organizations. It's so nice to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I was looking forward to this, Kent. I'm, I'm, you know, it's a little bit different to talk about revenue growth. And I noticed you have that as a registered trademark. Um, what is that? Just the name of your company, or is that a, a, a thing you say you do? You know what I mean? Is is this a <laughs> is this a verb? Is this a noun? Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> what did you register? And, and-
2: Yeah, that's a a great question, and uh, it really came from the genesis of all the work I've been doing that started 25 years ago. What I uncovered and discovered inside companies all over the world was they're far too focused on business growth. They're far too focused on getting bigger, sometimes better, but they're far too focused on trying to add uh, and be bigger. And and when they should, if they want to be successful, if they want to create wealth, if they want to be able to ride through the tough times, they need to learn how to generate revenue growth. Now, that, that sounds like interchangeable words, and most people do that. Right. But revenue growth, the way I define it, is that you actually scale revenue against your assets, meaning uh, you sign larger contracts, uh, you generate uh, more per product, you generate more per location. Uh, so every asset you have from people to contracts to sales pursuits uh, to products and services, you're actually generating more revenue and, and profitable revenue uh, when you focus on the revenue growth side. And, and a real quick example is yeah. if, if your average sale is, let's say, a thousand or it's ten thousand or let's say it's a, a million, um, you could sell a lot a lot more of those but your cost of sales you're adding your infrastructure your overhead your support all your costs go way up and that eats profits uh if you're able to sell five or ten times that if you sell a million dollar contract and you could sell five million dollars you just uh eliminated uh, dozens of areas of cost which become pure profit and so Uh, My focus, my work, has been speaking around the world is uh, understand what revenue growth really is and then how do you design and build your company to achieve that and optimize success.
1: Well, you said a lot that's really important, and I'm um, thinking of a course I'm teaching right now to uh – uh, students who are trying to be entrepreneurs and are developing a business plan. And we talk about efficiency and scale and a lot of the things of uh, not reinventing the wheel. <laughs> and uh, you yeah. know, when you buy in bulk, of course, you would have some discounts in certain things. But are you more uh, looking at efficiency, scale? What are you? What is your main focus? Yeah, great.
2: Great question, mm-hmm. and that's where uh, uh, the language is so important that people use the words, but they they add their meanings of from last century to them, and mm-hmm. and so um, you can only be so efficient, uh, you can only be so effective, and, and that helps with optimization. But uh, real scaling or scaling a revenue growth is when you're actually producing more uh, from an asset. Okay. So um, it, so let's say we have a product, and 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 we can sell a thousand of those. Um, and a lot of people would say, okay, well, let's bring on more products and sell more thousands. Well, what if we could sell ten thousand of those products, or what if we could sell uh, that product and get ten times the revenue each sale we make? In, in other words, you're not you're not adding; uh, you're scaling against a number. Mm-hmm. And and it's a it almost sounds semantics, but it uh, it like semantics, but it's not mm-hmm. because uh, what we're trying to do is is produce more from X. And, and when we can do that, what makes that so powerful is that's what actually creates wealth inside a company.
3: Right. And, and
2: when, we, when we don't have to spend more time, resources, more dollars, uh, more of anything to generate X,
0: um,
2: that all becomes pure profit or cash on hand, cash flow or working capital. That's what creates wealth. And that's the reason so many companies are struggling today going out of business and will never open uh, is because they were trying to grow or they were trying to be bigger, but they never created wealth inside their firm to get them through the rough times. Now, scaling, the way most people use that that concept or term is they think, oh, okay, so um, if I can um, uh, deliver X number of products, I can make five deliveries a day, then I can add more people and I can make 10 or 20 or 30 deliveries a day. That's a that's a form of scaling, but that's not scaling against an asset. Right.
3: Well,
2: now, now if I could have one individual deliver 10 times a day or if I could uh, produce X widgets or products, uh, some kind of factor where it didn't cost me more or, or, or cost me very little.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, all of a sudden, we start scaling to where we're creating huge profitability. And, and, and at the end of the day, it's not how much money a business makes, it's how much it can keep and use in other ways.
1: Well, you know, a lot of uh, people are doing either sales as a service, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, software as a service or uh, different kinds of um, things that it's not more expensive necessarily to produce more. Um, But are you dealing with that kind of a um, product or is it physical widget kind of products?
2: So it really doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. uh, whether it's uh, brick and mortar retail, uh, it's uh, a cyber offering or digital offering, mm-hmm. uh, really any, anything can be scaled more. If, if, if we talk about and clients that have been in the retail space, if, if we could generate more per store without opening more stores, we didn't increase our infrastructure. We may have increased our headcount a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but we didn't increase our overall infrastructure, our management, our travel, all the other things as you open more stores. So what we're trying to do is, is, is not um, one of the things, and this would be good for your students or who you're helping, mm-hmm. um, is to understand the difference between in- incremental success and optimization. Okay. And an and op- and, and incremental is where each year, each quarter, we add, we, we increase uh, uh, right. by some percentage. Optimization is when you maximize uh, uh, your production of everything using the least amount of resources doing it. Yeah. So uh, an, exam- an example in sales. So um, I've got hundreds of, of case studies of where if a salesperson's quota was a million dollars for the year, or for the quarter, and, and in one case, uh, we helped a salesperson sell thirteen million dollars in one quarter. They wow. just did the work of capped? twelve other salespeople. <laughs> oh, and no cap. That's the, yeah, when I when I re-engineered you comp, can tell I've been in
1: sales. Go ahead.
2: Oh, oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just go ahead and share. They actually worked for me. This this particular uh, case study.
1: Uh-huh.
2: They uh, the commission check was eight hundred sixty-four thousand dollars. Wow.
1: What was it? What was the product?
2: Uh, this was software. This is network uh, management software, uh-huh. and wow. and 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 so what? What's so beautiful about that is instead of hiring twelve more salespeople and 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 adding eight more categories of cost for each salesperson, and then adding um, dozens—I don't have the number in my head right now—but the dozens and dozens and dozens of extra sales cycles because you don't win every one of them. Now all of a sudden, I've got one person producing uh, twelve to thirteen times more than what what they. Uh, we're required to do. Um, my support costs go down. My infrastructure costs go down. Uh, my support to the client goes down because we only had one client as opposed to 13 more clients. That's optimization. That's how you create wealth inside a company uh, because you're not um, you're not living last century's paradigm of spend more to make more. You're actually generating a lot more with less.
3: Well, and, and, and that's to-
2: where so many companies are in trouble today. Is they're they're living last century's paradigm in many ways. But one of them is this: more for more. If I spend more on marketing, SEO, hire more salespeople, add more products, uh, uh, all all this more, I should get more. Well, they do, but they're adding um, to the top line and they're destroying their bottom
1: line. They're, well, they're not. They're more not creating wealth, or gal or whoever that was. If you have more of them. that if you're able to duplicate or replicate what that person does wouldn't more be good if you can do that
2: yeah or or even could we produce more from that individual that could could this person Mm -hmm. produce 20 million a year Mm -hmm. and so I I always look at the um, the revenue scalability from an individual a product a service a contract or even a client and here's a here's a great example and you know we've been using these Statistics for years, it costs eight to ten times uh, more to generate a new client than keep an existing one. Well, through account penetration, if you can maximize uh, what you're generating from a single client, uh, then, again, your costs are way down and your profits are way up.
1: You know, this is bringing to mind, I've I've worked in sales in so many industries, it's it's kind of scary. Um, But I was thinking in pharmaceutical (laughs) sales, you know what they would do, which was so um, not motivating for me, is they'd try to get you to, they'd give you a forecast and they'd say, well, we'd hope you generate about 105% of forecast and they'd give you this forecast. So if you came in at 110%, the next year they'd uh, increase your forecast to, to try and get you back to 105 but if you came in at hundred they decrease it to try to keep you at 105 so there was just absolutely no incentive to do anything because you were gonna be adjusted the next year I never understood sure. that thinking
2: uh, I, and, and you know it's just uh, it, it's phenomenal and I came up to the sales ranks
4: decades ago
2: and and the more successful I was I would I would shatter quotas they would cut my territory and increase my number right and I'm like I, I, I think you like me <laughs> <laughs> who's the winner here right, right. <laughs> and, and after a few years of that I kept going wow my territory is the smallest of anyone my number is the highest of anyone what, what, what's going on here and it, and I got so frustrated so that's it you bring up a very interesting point today because I have CEOs and, and entrepreneurs on occasion say, well I don't want my salespeople to make a lot of money and I said yes you do why
1: don't they what's the reason
2: Oh they're rational. Well, they'll leave, they'll get lazy,
1: uh, they'll, they'll, uh,
2: they'll quit. Uh, and they give me all these stories. I said, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I understand the feeling, but I'll tell you the reality is just the opposite. Yeah. So So I had salespeople working for me in the software space, making a million making seven figures a year. and And the way that I designed the compensation system was that there were accelerators and, and uh, bonuses and all kinds of trigger points to make more money. Um, I, I Over a three year period in software sales, I had zero unplanned turnover, I had 5% turnover in an industry that averages 40% turnover. Yeah, yeah.
3: Well,
2: uh, on top of that, what, what was even more beautiful was, um, I didn't have to use recruiters or even HR to find people, but the, mm-hmm. the top people from the top companies were calling me and saying, could we come work for you? So I, so I had a, a stack of resumes from the uh, you know, National Salesperson of the Year from my competitors wanting to come work for me when I could get an open headcount. And so it's so counterintuitive. And today, when, some, when I hear that, someone that says, well, I don't want myself to make a lot of money or um, I, I don't want them to be too successful, I'm saying, well, you, you really do because yeah. you're not going to need more and you're gonna attract and retain the best of the best and and, and I talk a lot about it if, if you don't have the best talent working for you you're at a competitive disadvantage
1: well I mean you bring up some really good points when I sold software in the 80s and you know as a yep. value-added reseller of our for um, IBM and you know, back in the day you know it, it, I guess it depended what I sold if it was pharmaceutical sales it was different from software sales from real estate and from lending lending I, I think they 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 waited quite a ways to cap you, but it seems like everything was limiting. And when I hear that they don't want you to leave, I'm thinking who would want to leave if you're making that much money, (laughs) you'd want to stay. But then again, you're worried about if you get these really heavy duty hitters and you have all your eggs in one basket and that person leaves. So how do you make this, uh, you know, you can reproduce what these people are able to do. Are you helping them with that?
2: Yeah. So you, you you bring up a really great point. I'm going to almost backtrack a little bit. And, and the first thing, uh, again, last century's models that people are still following that they've got to move off of is when you make a salesperson the center of your universe, um, and 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 you become dependent upon that individual or company's success, you're in a lot of trouble. In today's complex sales, if you were a VAR for IBM, you you were not in transaction or simple sales. You were in complex sales. Mm-hmm. And today, or let me say, go back 15, 20 years ago when I would give speeches and talk about sales competencies, which are clusters of skill sets being applied to produce consistent results, um, I used to say that one in a 1,000 salespeople uh, are professionally competent to handle all phases of a complex sale. Today, 15, 20 years later, only one in 2,500. What that really means is that for so many companies, the success of their business, the future, the ability to generate wealth and, and increase the valuation is resting on the shoulders of people that might be incompetent.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's, do you think a lot of that comes from to so many teams now as compared to individual responsibilities?
2: What happens, it, it's poor design, mm-hmm. it's poor architecture. That's why I, I, I picked up the title years ago, Revenue Growth Architect, is because I don't I don't architect organizations to be dependent upon people or products um we we build it to be dependent upon the enterprise in other words the heartbeat of the organizations i design at the heartbeat is process how Mm -hmm. things get done how work gets accomplished people play a role in the process but they can't be the process Mm -hmm. um as, as soon as you become dependent on individuals or a product or a single client uh you bring too much risk into the equation and and then your company is set up for uh not that it can't be successful, but outside buyers, and I have a lot of clients that end up selling uh, their companies, a buyer will look in it and they see those risks. And they say, oh, you've got one uh, rainmaker, if they quit or leave or retire, what happens? Uh, you've got really a, a, a single product that uh, you're too dependent on, or you really have a, a, a sole source provider, that's that's well, that's a lot of risk. Or you have that one super large client that makes 80, 85% of your portfolio, That's that's risk. So what we want to do is design a business uh, to produce maximum revenue, profits, and sales using the fewest resources, but not having a, a, what I call a people dependent model or a product dependent model.
1: What about does, a search engine? Dep- yeah. What about a search engine dependent model? <laughs> you know, yeah. Google changes oh. things. <laughs> Uh,
2: yeah, the, the, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating, so many uh, uh, CEOs, entrepreneurs come to us and they say, wow, you know what, we're spending a fortune on SEO, we spend a fortune on digital marketing, PR firms, all this, and we're just not growing, we're not getting the, the success we, we, we want or we believe we could, and I said, yeah, that's, that's because you're, um, uh, you're, you're not set up for success, you're, you're, you're deep in the go-to-market phase, but in most cases you were never revenue ready or you were never market ready to generate the most sales possible using the fewest resources. So they, they burn all this time and energy. And here's a statistic I can give you because I've been doing this for so long around the world. Okay, 67% of sales and marketing efforts are a complete waste of time, money, and resources.
1: Yeah. I'm not surprised. (laughs) It's wrong (laughs) word for being in there. Well, you know, having worked in real estate and lending, you know, when you're, Uh especially a small uh, entrepreneur kind of thing, jobs, you know, where you're just kind of um, working as a solopreneur and that kind of thing, I I see a lot of people who throw a lot of money at different ad campaigns, at different things, and, you know, they try doing A-B testing, they try doing stuff. uh, But there's just... What's the biggest mistakes? I mean, what are you seeing people, especially like the solo entrepreneur, solopreneurs, people like who are maybe speakers or they're trying to get consulting gigs or they're, you know, what what do you think the biggest mistake those kind of people make?
2: Yeah, and and you know what? It's fascinating that it holds true whether you're a billion dollar mature organization, international multinational, or you're an individual entrepreneur starting up a business. It, It it holds true. I've identified over the years. There's really four phases to optimizing wealth with your products and services. And that that first phase is becoming revenue ready. And and what that means, a couple of the the key principles in there are uh, identifying a fundamental marketplace problem that's not being solved or is underserved. And then building a unique model uh, uh, to satisfy that, doing something different or unique that no one else is providing to satisfy that and then identifying the revenue streams that can turn that into money. That that's revenue ready, and that's really a validation phase. And and what's so fascinating is I'll go into companies that have been around for 20, 30 years, and I have to go back and 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 ask, what is the FMP, what's the fundamental marketplace problem you're solving? And they can't tell me.
3: Hmm.
2: They just, well, we've been offering this service for years and years, and and so you know, we just we're just trying to grow, and I'm saying but that's the problem. You're, you're either detached or unattached to what was broken or is not broken today, and it's kind of like having a, a, a boat on the ocean without a rudder. You're, you're just going to slide all over the place. Right. So that's the first phase that sets up companies and entrepreneurs for underperformance. Uh, the next Now, here's what's interesting is, is most uh, leaders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, as soon as they uh, figure out a product or service, they go to market. Well, they skip this phase, the second phase that's so critical, um, and I call it the market-ready phase. And, and then market-ready, after revenue-ready, market-ready means our, our targeting, our packaging, our messaging, and our pricing. It, these, answering these real strategic questions of who, what, where, when, why, and how, um, so that we can attract the most business possible using the fewest resources and humans doing it. Right. No, Nobody wants to do this phase. No, nobody wants to go through this. And when I start that phase with targeting questions, um, tell me about your demographics, tell me about your psychographics, and tell me about the characteristics of your perfect client profile. They can't tell me. Mm-hmm. They can't tell me really who buys or why they buy or who they want to buy. And and I'm so, so okay, so it doesn't matter who buys. And then you end up taking whoever you can get. You end up making up a portfolio of, Uh, average or good clients versus the best of the best and then that's where I tell a lot of people you have to learn that you're going to win with winners If, if you try to build a company based on losers or or low quality clients you're going to pay a fortune to support them service them keep them retain them meet their expectations that's all that's all profit that's all money um, and again, you're not going to be creating a wealth. You might be running a business, but you'll never make serious money with it. So those two phases are what sets up go-to-market. And so the ones you mentioned, such as a speaker, an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. a, a new product or service, if they don't work through those two phases and they go into go-to-market, um, go-to-market phase where you market, sell, you partner, you build a pipeline, uh, that, that becomes a money shredder. And, and, and now you're just burning time you're spinning uh, you're frustrated it's stressful uh, the inconsistencies the low profitability uh, the inability to forecast or predict all those horrific things that, that everybody experiences in almost all cases I can tie those back to a failure point in being revenue ready or market ready
1: so what should they be asking themselves uh, if if they're not making the money they want, those type of... Uh, yeah, they, they
2: they they should go back and, and, and say, you know what, what is the problem I'm really trying to solve? What What's the fundamental marketplace problem? And I'll give you an example. I can use my business because okay. it, it, I, I, there's just so many examples. But when I started this firm 20 years ago, I said, what's the problem? What's, what's broken? Well, the market doesn't need more trainers, coaches, consultants, all that. Right. What the market, what the market, and, and and they don't need any, they don't need more people, speakers, books, telling them how to grow their business and how to spend money to make money. Yeah. What they need is a solution that teaches them, how do you make money without spending money? How, how do you double and triple your sales, revenue, and profits and not spend another dollar time or hour doing it? That That's the problem that wasn't being solved. Mm-hmm. Um and 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 it's so frustrating for people today even yourself you're saying boy how do i double or triple the size of this but not spend more time or money doing it help me with that and i'll i'll knock down your door um and i'm going to push the envelope even further next year to give you an example uh to when to when as the provider you take on more risk next year i'm going to offer guaranteed results programs not not satisfaction but uh, if you're in one of our programs, our group programs, and, and you don't generate back the revenue that you've invested in the program, here's your check back. Here's mm-hmm. your money. We'll we will guarantee results so that you absolutely, as a client, have no risk. Right, right. That's that's where the world's going, and that, and that's where either the world is forcing companies to take away the risk. In other words, offer it to me for free. Right. Or or you can be proactive and say, I'll I'll go ahead and take all the risk now for you. Because I want to differentiate, and that's that's where it's so important. And, and and back to answer your question is entrepreneurs and business owners they have to say what is it unique about my model? What am I doing that differentiates that brings more value uh, to the clients? And and uh, I, sometimes in speeches and workshops I walk through examples of the pizza industry, and I talk through uh, a Pizza Hut. Uh, their value add was a dedicated building to pizza. Mm-hmm. I thought that, that was the greatest thing ever when I was a kid. But then, <laughs> uh, I, you know, now other companies didn't come along and say, okay, well, we'll duplicate that. Other companies came along and said, wow, this is an explosive industry. For me to make money, I've got to offer a different uh, model. And, and so now I said, yeah, Domino's. Domino's said, you don't even have to get dressed up and go out and sit in the building. We'll bring the pizza to you. Okay. And, and, and so in this case, they're saying, um, uh, uh, we're, we're going to uh, fight it out on delivery. Well, then uh, Papa John's comes comes along and they go, "Hmm, well, we don't want to build uh, buildings where people can sit and eat because they're expensive, it's infrastructure, you got to have labor, you got to have waiters, blah blah blah." And we don't want to fight it out on delivery because you can't do it 30 minutes or less or you're going to cause wrecks and be sued for the liability. So Papa John said, "Hmm, we're going to fight it out on quality. We're we're going to offer the highest quality, not frozen, not not sugar down sauce and all that. We're going to offer the highest quality, and we're actually going to put it in our tagline: "Better ingredients, better pizza." Pizza that sued them, and and they went through the court system, uh-huh. and Papa John's won. Papa John's won that they offered, and, and this is a different approach on a model. Now, now if you're uh, sitting back and saying, mm, "How do I go after the forty billion or hundred billion dollar pizza industry?" We have to come at it today from a different model in in our cities. <laughs> Yeah, and this I know is how, what it is. See, Can
1: I guess? Yeah, go ahead. They'll come and feed it to you in bed next, right? <laughs> <laughs> that would be my <laughs> my choice. Yep. All right, go ahead. Yeah, well,
2: you know they they talk they talk about making it at your door, a piece of truck, but uh-huh. you know that's got coding issues and things like. But in our city, we have a company, and I'll give you the name just a little bit. But a company that came along and said, "Hmm, okay, let's not fight it out on uh, on on, on uh, brick and mortar. Let's not fight it out on." Uh, dash the door, let's not fight it out on uh, quality, because those those areas have all been attacked, but let's fight it out in another way. And, and these smart people stepped back and said, let's borrow from supermarkets and let's borrow from Subway and allow people to come in and customize their own pizza through like an assembly line process like Subway, Right, and they can take and bake. Well, two things happen because most people were looking at the pizza industry and saying, I would never fight it out in that business because it's just so uh, saturated, Right. not just the business, but the cheese. And, and, <laughs> and so these guys came along and said, yeah, but the industry's growing so fast. There's got to be a way to make money. And they said, we'll use a different model. We'll do a take-and-bake model. And two beautiful things happen. One of them is they don't need ovens in their stores, so their footprint is smaller. And they don't need to hire people that can manage ovens and deal with the dangers and liability of hot uh, devices inside the company. All right. But an even more a more beautiful thing happened, and I think it's by state. But in our state, if you own a grocery item, there's no tax. Wow. And so, in my my particular my particular city, that's an eight and a quarter percent discount. Wow. So now, all of a sudden, Papa Murphy's offers a take and bake. And, and high quality, and you can come in and get it and then heat it up whenever you want. And they're eight and a quarter percent cheaper than competitors who have to charge a sales tax. So th- those are four examples of how you look at an industry and, and, and then your entrepreneurs or anybody, you look at an industry and say, hmm, what's what's not being solved or what's being underserved or what's what's an attack point? And then how do I build a model that can satisfy that attack point and what would be the revenue streams? to validate and create a sustainable, fast-growth, profitable business.
1: Well, it is interesting. Does that help? Yeah, no, it's great. You know, I've had somebody on who talked about how Domino's stock just outperformed everybody's because of uh – the technology they added you know for you to be able to order yep. on your phone i mean there's just so many ways to go on in sales and I, you brought up so many great ideas and i think a lot of people probably learned a lot from this and i know i did i was hoping you would share how uh, people could reach you and follow you to find out more
2: yeah the uh, the best is our website at uh, revenuegrowthcompany.com and uh, if they want to reach out to me personally kent b k e n t b at revenuegrowthcompany.com and 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 go there often uh, to the website if you will we're gonna be adding more assessments I've got some CEO knowledge letters Uh, we're gonna be offering some e-courses we're really gonna populate that uh, uh, website as a a, a new book rolls out in uh, 2021
1: oh that's awesome well you know me I love uh, assessments so I got to check that out and it, it was so nice to have you on today Kent this was really interesting
2: Oh, well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed being on and and talking to you.
1: Oh, it was fun. And we will be back right after this message. Curiosity is a critical and direct link to improving motivation and communication-based issues that challenge organizations. By improving workers' curiosity, you can enhance employee engagement, emotional intelligence, innovation, productivity, and many other byproducts that come with that intrinsic but underutilized attribute. To find out more about how to improve curiosity, please go to curiositycode.com. I am here with Sean Rosensteel, who is the author of The School of Intentional Living and the founder of Intentional Living Academy. It's so nice to have you here, Sean.
4: Uh, thanks so much for having me, Diane. It's a pleasure.
1: Oh, you're a sport. We had some technical difficulties, and this is <laughs> so nice of you to be patient because that's absolutely. You know, I've done thousands of these interviews, so our our conversation was so fascinating that the computer just couldn't couldn't take it so that's right that's right either that or or
4: mercury's in retrograde right one or the other
1: something like that but uh i know we had a, a great conversation the last time we talked and i wanted to follow up with what we said because you've got an amazon bestseller that was bestseller across five categories which is a huge thing And I I think that it's really interesting because you were telling me a little bit about what made you want to write a book and the process you had to go through. So let's talk about your book. Uh, And it's called The Intentional Living. Give me the name of your book. I want to make sure it's still The Intentional Living.
4: Uh, It's called The School of Intentional Living. The School of Intentional
1: Living. Okay, because I I know you have the Intentional Living Academy that you do in conjunction with Uh what what you write about. So we'll talk about the the Intentional Living Academy later, but tell me about the the School of Intentional Living.
4: Sure, yeah. So the book was published uh, earlier this year and very, very happy with the results. I think it was actually July, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And I I think what what really stemmed the whole... um, desire to write a book was 10 years ago uh, in my late 20s I went bankrupt and back then my whole identity you know I grew up with this very conventional idea of success um, big homes fast cars it was all about status and material possessions and that was really the main driver in my life and then when I went bankrupt uh, my my entire identity in a sense was stripped away right yeah, like right. I, I thought I was all of these things so when I went bankrupt, it was a real wake-up call uh, for me, and I feel very fortunate because at that time, it was exactly one month before my wedding date, so it was a little bit of a challenging time. However, I do look back on it as a bit of a blessing. I mean, I experienced that event at a time in my life where I could afford to make those mistakes, right? Right. Um, Fast forward the tape 10 years later, and and luckily, um, my fiancé at the time really gave me the confidence that I wasn't able to give myself at the time she hung in there which was a big blessing and you know now we find ourselves doing better and we have three beautiful children seven and under and you know it's amazing how much can transpire over a 10-year period right um but I think that was a real blessing for me because it shifted me so much I mean I I really lost my entire identity I kind of questioned this idea of conventional living and conventional success and are the things that I've really organized my whole entire life around do those truly matter to me I know they matter to my to my environment and to my peers and to my influences but I've never really been taught what to decide I want out of life and how to define success based on my unique values and circumstances and situation Um, so it was a real wake-up call and I think by the way I think a lot of us are experiencing that right now I mean a lot of us have, have lost loved ones recently we've we've lost our jobs or that financial security we you know this pandemic i think is is shaking us out of our daily routine we've lost comfort and convenience and certainty in many ways so i think that's one of the reasons the book has done as well as it's done is because a lot of people are kind of coming up for error and saying well you know what what does intentional living look like for me? Like I want to live more intentionally moving forward. I've been going through the motions for a while. And uh, what does this look like for me? I also had a really incredible uh, advanced reader campaign. I had over a hundred people that were supportive and That's generous age, enough yeah. to, yeah, read the book ahead of time and provide a lot of valuable feedback and and write some of the first you know reviews on Amazon. And uh, we had an incredible launch team of about twenty people. so, Um, yeah, it's been a really, you know, at the beginning of the year, when I decided to write the book, I've been wanting to write this book, Diane, for many years because I've been teaching, um, intentional living for about six years now and coaching it. And I've been wanting to write a book. It was recommended to me many times that I should write a book and and use the framework um, because it was so versatile and so custom-tailored to each and everyone who who used it. I think that's a lot of the feedback I've received and what I've come to recognize is that there's a lot of frameworks for personal development and there's a lot of frameworks for for growth and and living intentionally and all the rest of it, but um, oftentimes they are a little bit rigid, right? right? Like, here's the path you have to take, no deviation. And mine's a little bit more fluid. It's a little bit more flexible. I actually encourage people to, to take my discovery and take my approach and really make it work for them based on where they are in life, the stage in life that they're at, what's important to them. And, and I kind of take them through a discovery. So um, at the end of the day, I mean, I finally had an idea last year as far as the entry point into writing about this very broad subject of intentional living. It was very intimidating to me. And I think I had this, like, who am I to write this book attitude, that mindset, right? right,
3: right. Uh,
4: I'm an avid reader, and I've always appreciated the many authors who have been you know, my mentors over the years. They've had the uh, courage to organize and clarify their thoughts into the written word and really expose themselves to public criticism at the end of the day. And that always scared me.
1: Yeah, it can. Um, People can yeah. be Yeah.
4: Yeah. People can be rough. That's right. Uh-huh. So it was a lot of mental battle, you know, getting over all of that. But what was nice is like, once I sat down to write it, it took me three days, which is pretty amazing. Wow. Because I think it's been, it was bottled up, you know, for so many years, it took me three days and I'm like, I'm done. And then all of a sudden I got <laughs> into the editing phase and got my butt kicked and my feelings hurt by my two editors. Oh yeah! They did such a fantastic job. So the real work actually began when I started the editing phase. Uh, which was interesting, but very grateful for all the editorial work that went into it. It certainly needed it, because I think it was more of a vomit draft, <laughs> you know, that I, first round. Mind,
1: definitely a mind dump, you know, when you first right. start writing. I, I get the same thing. I, you just got to get it out of you, and then you go, okay, now what do I do with it, right?
4: Exactly, exactly. So at the beginning of the year, I set this goal to publish a book, and, and that was kind of my goal, and I w- I'm i a big I'm really into goal setting and, and finding out the reasons why, you know, the reasons behind the goals, the purpose behind the goals, and really trying to stack those motivators on top of the goals I set, because I used to be horrible at setting goals for myself. I mean, I used to really set very, what I would call, like, impotent goals, right? And now I've I've learned over the years to set very potent goals that will propel me and really fuel me and motivate me intrinsically to to advance in the direction of whatever those dreams look like. So at the beginning of the year, I said, okay, uh, this year is the year I'm gonna publish a book. And then a few weeks later, I'm like, you know what, that's just not enough, and I I shifted that, and I said, I wanna publish a bestseller. Um, So the moment I shifted that focus from publishing a book to publishing a bestseller, I recognized early in the year that, oh my gosh, I need to learn book marketing. Yeah,
3: there's a lot I need to learn how
4: to market, Mm -hmm. there's a lot to it. So when I, you know, at the end of the, you know, now on the other side of this entire project, Mm -hmm. I see it as like six primary phases. I do intend to write a book again. I'm probably gonna focus on this intentional living topic for a few years,
3: because I think
4: it it, it deserves my time and attention, Yeah. yeah. I think it's that important enough. Um, So while I have a bunch of other ideas to write books, I'm probably not gonna go there for a few years. However, I do see that there are about six phases. So for any listener who's interested in, in writing a book, hopefully this can help. I went through like this planning and outlining phase, then you move into the writing phase, then the editorial phase, then you move into design, you know, now all of a sudden it's like, ooh, I thought the worst was over, I need to decide on the title, (laughs) I need to decide on, on the subtitle, I need to get the cover artwork done, like there's some inside, you know, outside flaps, all that stuff, so you move into design, then you move into publishing, and then there's that last, sixth, and final phase, which is marketing. So by shifting the goal up front, Mm -hmm. yeah, back in early January from publishing a book to publishing a bestseller, I, it kind of just triggered me and I realized, oh gosh, I better figure out how to market books. Um, I've been studying entrepreneurship and marketing for 15 years, but I've never actually looked into how do I market a book? So I started taking training. I joined a a mastermind, which was very helpful. I read probably two dozen books on how to market books. Yeah. Uh, so I learned a lot of that along the way you know as I was moving from one of these phases to the next in the background I was learning kind of the art and science and some of the best of breed practices book marketing which really helped me anticipate okay once the book publishes you're not done that's where the hard work begins because now you have to you know sustain your message and, and so to speak and you have to continue moving copies so I knew right away that I wanted to created advanced reader campaign and, and I had about a hundred or so people in that database. And I thought, okay, I know close friends and family that are interested in, in growth and, and, and purpose and living intentionally. Um, you know, they might be good readers. So luckily they were, you know, most people accepted the invitation to get an advanced copy of the book a few months early with the understanding that hopefully they could write a review during the launch week. And then I actually took from that group of 100 people, there was about 20 of them, uh, about 20% of them who were nice enough to, um, who were nice enough to agree to help my wife and I ultimately uh, manage the launch. So we kind of called that the launch team and they did a lot of things on social media and uh, just really created a bunch of good momentum behind launch week, which was great. But then, of course, there's post-launch, right? And a lot of authors, right, right. I mean, you, you, you've probably, hopefully not, but maybe you've experienced this. Like, I learned about the launch hangover, right? And I learned about this ahead of time. And it's like, you launch your book, there's a ton of buzz. right? And you get done with the first 72 hours, the first week or so of launch, and all of a sudden you experience this hangover, like sales fall off a cliff.
3: right?
4: Uh, so I knew I needed to learn different strategies to sustain the book sales over the long term. And I think that's really helped. I mean, the book has been published now for, I believe, a little over 90 days. It was late July when it published. And I think we're up to, like, the 3,500 or even 4,000 copy mark, which, for me, like a little self-published author. Yeah, that's
3: uh, amazing. With
4: no, like, big agency, publisher, team behind me, I'm really happy with with those results.
1: Well, I think it's really um, interesting what you write about as well, you know. And I think that, you know, your experience kind of reminded me when I had uh, a conversation with, um, oh, uh, I'm thinking of Rich Karlgaard who wrote Late Bloomers, uh, a big guy at at Forbes, you know, and he had written this great book and it was all talking about, and writing, he wrote about just people who don't necessarily hit their big mark and their big idea and it right in their 20s and you know if you don't get into harvard by a certain age they don't just write it off like it's right right and yeah i think that it ties into your message you know some sometimes you hit bankruptcy sometimes you hit these snags that kind of are eye openers that lead to your big late blooming thing later and uh sure. so sure so but you in your book i saw some of the ideas you you write about the difference between being proactive and reactive and obviously you're going to be reactive to a, um, a bankruptcy but how did that change you to make you be more proactive in the future
4: yeah, I think for, for so many years, I mean, late teenage years and throughout basically my entire twenties, I, I was just making very negligent and very complacent decisions, and I was kind of letting my environment, and my peers influence what I believed was important at the time. And I think it's very easy, uh, you know, if you if you live what I would call like a conventional life, where you you know go to school, you move beyond school, get that job. Um, you know, maybe you settle down, start a family, hope that someday you'll experience this, you know, cozy retirement. If you look at the stats, it's not pretty, right.
3: um,
4: that, that, that template, so to speak, unfortunately, isn't working as well as maybe it once did a few decades ago. And, and for me, like the key to living a successful life, no matter how you define success, we're all unique and we're all different. But for me, the key to living a successful life is moving from that place of conventional living to intentional living. Right.
3: right. And that
4: was the real wake up call that that's what really, you know, that was the pivotal moment in my life where I really started to discover what mattered to me and how can I align my actions and behaviors and decisions with some of my values and some of the, you know, goals that I wanted to um, pursue in life. And I think, when we live proactively, when we, when we live from that place of, okay, I'm going to, not, I don't want to use the word control, because you know, none of us are really in right. control, <laughs> you know? so yeah, that, that's uh-huh. kind of a sensitive word, yeah. but when some of us can start to design environments that are conducive to our success, when, some, when, when we can start to you know, very loosely plan the upcoming week for ourselves, Instead of just, you know, rolling into Monday and just reacting all day to the demands and all of a sudden we, you know, hit the end of the week, Friday comes up and we're like, what just happened? Or, hey, I didn't accomplish anything that I set out to do this week. That's very reactive and it's very easy to live in reactivity. I think for many of us, that's kind of our default mode. And so making a shift to living a more proactive life and and, and commanding our environments and deciding what matters to us and actually scheduling out some of our highest priorities on our calendar and minimizing our distractions, like our whole world can change. I mean, there's like a whole new world out there that I never realized existed before I started to, you know, command some of these things in my own life.
1: Well, you you wrote about simple ways to eliminate distractions, and I'm curious what you had for... uh advice you
4: give in that respect? Sure. Yeah, well, I, I call you know I call them weapons of mass distraction. I mean, here we are, <laughs> Diane, you know, like living in the information age. What's fascinating is that, like, we have more wisdom, we have access to more wisdom in the palm of our hands via these smartphones than, you know, previous generations did. I mean, their, their access was limited to the shelves at the local library, right? So we have this incredible responsibility, and I appreciate the fact that maybe 98% of the information out there on the internet may not be conducive to our growth or improving ourselves as you know human and spiritual beings. Like I appreciate that,
3: mm-hmm.
4: but but the fact of the matter is there is access to great, great, great information. But we need to know what we what we want, what we need. We need to know where our weaknesses are. We need to know you know what strengths we want to improve upon and build over time. What skill sets. So i think there's a lot of awareness there you know ahead of time but unfortunately what comes with that is a lot of distraction what was it back in the 1840s they called it the gold rush right out in california and right now i feel like this age my prediction is it's going to be known as the attention rush i mean everybody everything every business is after your attention 24 7. and there's that old you know fancy quote we have to stand guard at the doors of our mind and i think it's really easy for us to get um, almost just normalized distraction, but I like to do something and this is in the book But I, I call it play the long game with some of the distractions. I have in my life So okay. for example right now, I think recent recent statistics suggest that the average American adult watches Roughly four hours of TV a day
3: Wow, that's a so lot.
4: like for many for many of us Our weapon of mass distraction is the television whether yeah. it's news yeah. or maybe it's binging Netflix I mean you name it it's out there
1: we're for me, for the election to end. <laughs> yeah, right.
4: It's 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 tough. It's really it's difficult. Lot. I mean, you yeah. have to. That's it, it, right. That's right. It's not easy. And so, for me, many years ago, it was my smartphone. And before the screen time report was available to us in the settings area, I think that's on Android, Apple, you name it. I think whatever OS you have now uh-huh. has screen time reports. Right. That, by the way, is primarily for them. <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> for you, right? Right. Right. I think that's a privacy thing. But anyway, uh-huh. so. Uh, I think it was Moment. I think I downloaded an app many years ago before the screen time report became, you know, a a default setting. There was an app called Moment, and I downloaded it. I used it for a week or two. That's what it recommended. And I was getting ready for bed, and my wife and I were hopping in, I went to charge my phone, and I just happened to check the Moment app. I'm like, oh, I think I'm at the two-week mark or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, honey, I've been on my phone on average two hours a day. And she's like, oh, that actually sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, well, is that good? Let, let's let's play the long game. Let's do the math. So I basically multiplied two hours a day times 365 days a year and said, I think I'm going to be alive. I hope to be alive for another, I think I got another 50 good years in me. Uh-huh. So I kind of multiplied out the annual hours by 50
3: uh-huh. and then
4: divided by 24 and then divided by 365. I'm like, if I keep this up and I live till I'm 80, I'm going to be, you know, I will have spent for over 4 years of my life thumbing through just, you know, garbage content at the time. Yeah. That doesn't do anything to support my growth as, as a, you know, as an individual and I'm like this is crazy 4 years. So at 80, you know, that that's like it's like 5% of my life that I'm just my attention is being directed into the screen. Yeah. And I think for many of us weapons of mass distraction, the common thread that I've seen, you know, after working with so many people in groups over the years is like the common thread is the screen, you know. So it could be social media for some people. It could mm-hmm. be text messaging. It could be, um, you know, Netflix binging. Netflix. It could be YouTube. It could be just like scraping the internet for these random articles. You know, we get to the end of a blog and we see like some gross-looking wart, and we're like, "What the heck is that?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> it yeah. could be anything. Yeah, and I think we anything. have to be aware of some of these things and kind of take take some accountability for ourselves and say, "Look, if I don't make some of these changes." You know, what does this look like if I play the long game? What does this look like over the next year, five years, ten years? And what that does, I think, is it just gives us some good um, indication of if we don't make a shift and if we don't get more control over some of these distractions that we truly can control in our lives, um, you know, what, what's the net effect of that? And right. we talked briefly about mindset, Carol right. Dwack and, right, you know, right. deficiency versus... Um, Uh, growth motivation Mm -hmm. right so I think what that awareness does is it helps us to kind of use that deficiency motivation to our advantage and and, because oftentimes we weigh I think sometimes we want to make a change in life whether it's in our health wealth relationships like many of us want to make changes and we, we weigh the risks we assess the risks of making some of these big changes and we decide it's safer and more comfortable to stay put. But what we fail to do is we fail to play the long game with staying put. Well, let's also assess the risk of what my life looks yeah. like in five additional years.
1: That's right.
4: That's right. I, exactly. Mm-hmm. Opportunity cost.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: That's absolutely right. So I think that's an important distinction is, you know, when we're weighing, making changes here, it's like, well, we should also assess fairly and also weigh the, the cost of not doing anything.
1: Right? Yeah, I think you bring up some very important points about you know you mentioned before the weaknesses and, and opportunities and different things. You know, I often have my students do a personal SWOT analysis when we're doing mm-hmm. certain things, and actually I've incorporated a SWOT sort of exercise in my um, curiosity training. And I, I think that once you recognize the the threats and weaknesses, then you can kind of overcome them by creating actionable ways, you know, items that you can develop goals that are smart goals and and reach the next level and i know you do a lot of uh, helping people in your academy and you discuss you know intentional living there as well I, i'm curious who uh how big are these events that you or your academy is this a, a like a mastermind? Is it something that people attend through webinar? Is it, what, what exactly is the Intentional Living Academy and who is your clientele? Is there a certain age sure. group or a certain group that you uh, focus on?
4: Sure, yep, so I have the book and then the Intentional Living Academy, simply put it's an online course. Mm-hmm. It's a 12-module online course and I, I, I'm finding that, you know, there's many readers, in the book there are free resources, tools, and video tutorials, so a lot of people will download download those which is awesome, it's so exciting to see because that tells yeah. me that they're actually applying the lessons in the book and, and, and that's what I want. I want to make that impact to deliver those results to people but there's a certain percentage of people that need advanced training. They wanna go a little further, they wanna go deeper. So the Intentional Living Academy is there to support that in a more advanced and deeper way. And then what I've also realized is that there's a lot of people who in, uh, appreciate and value community and camaraderie and more uh, personalized coaching and ultimately accountability you know many of us will read books and we love what's in there but then it's like are we really going to be disciplined and accountable enough to schedule implementing what's in the book in our life right Uh, so i've created these acceleration programs which are more like masterminds they're group coaching anywhere from 10 to 25 people typically in these cohorts and uh, that that's been a really exciting thing because that's where i do deliver you know even more advanced training and we get to do some some meditations and some mindset exercises and and things of that nature together as a group. And ultimately we form a community and it's really neat because it's one of the chapters in my book, uh, about, you know, getting together with like-minded people who are all after the same things that you are, but are also struggling with some of the same, same things that you are. And the past few years I've, that, that's been a real, um, It's it's helped me, it's provided me with a real boost, is to identify first what I need the most and what I want the most, and then, okay, as an add-on to everything I'm learning and applying, how can I get involved with a community of other like-minded people who are also striving for these same things? So I think the acceleration program, what that's ultimately doing is, you know, giving people that sense of connection and community. And I think right now, more than ever, due to quarantine and isolation, I mean, I'm seeing community being valued more than it's ever been, at least in my lifetime, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I know you, you write about a lot of things that uh, are so important that you say we've already learned some of these things and lessons, but sometimes we don't uh, utilize them and, and approach them as we should. And I think that your book is really fascinating in the work you do in your academy also is very all this so helpful especially in today's time so i think a lot of people are going to want to know how they can reach you and find out more i was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing how they could follow you
4: sure thank you mm-hmm. yeah so i'm on um most social media although i'm not super active you can find me on most social social media but my website is seanrosensteel.com hopefully you can put that if you don't mind yes, that in the show notes definitely um and my book is available anywhere that books are sold barnes and noble amazon right now i'm running a bit of a promotion on the website Um, if you come to the website i'm offering a a personalized signed paperback as well as a free pdf of the book instantly um, and some other neat bonuses all you have to do is pay a small fee for shipping and handling so it's kind of the most exciting way to get the book now is just directly through me the reason i did that is because i had some significant setbacks um, the week of launch, I felt like I was handcuffed with a, you know, thousand pound weight on my ankle. But unfortunately when, when the book launched, it was still set to pre-order on Amazon, the paperback and the hardcover. So all you could buy was the Kindle version Ah. and then my print on demand company for everything outside of Amazon, they were really struggling. Like so many of us were with, with COVID and um, they were backed up like 60 days on shipping. So I'm like, okay, (laughs) I need to take this into my own hands. So Smart. I learned how to do, you know, the, the the book funnel thing, and and you know, deliver fulfilled copies, deliver copies directly um, with with a fulfillment center, and uh, that way it was kind of neat because I could offer signed copies with a personalized message. So so that's been kind of a neat experience in and of itself as well.
1: That's awesome. Well, I I, I hear you, and I've been waiting on a launch for my most recent book, and I know it's a tough time, and to do this well. It is really admirable, so congratulations on the success of your book, and it was so nice to have you on the show again, John. Yeah, (laughs)
4: thank you so much, Diane. This is such a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: It was for me too, and we will be back right after this message. Do you know someone who might benefit from taking the Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The CCI is the first and only assessment that determines the factors that inhibit curiosity. It's simple, if you recommend the assessment to someone else, you can receive 20% of the purchase price that they pay when they take the CCI through the link provided by you. To obtain the link and become an affiliate, please go to drdianhamiltoncom forward slash affiliate. Well, I'd really like to thank both Kent and Sean for being my guests today. We get so many great guests on the show. If you've missed any past episodes, you can find them at drdianhamilton.com. If you go to the blog, you can read them. You can listen to them there. Uh, of course, we, you can listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But sometimes it's nice to just go back and search through some of the older ones and just check out what's on the site. And uh, I hope you uh, enjoyed today's episode. And I hope you join us for the next episode of Take the Lead Radio. You've been listening to Take the Lead with Dr. Diane Hamilton on C-Suite Radio.